morning, Emmanuel CRC. Good morning. I, uh, as Patrick, pa- Pastor Patrick uh, said, my name is Daniel Harrison. I come with greetings from Fairfield Christian Reformed Church, uh, where I have served as an elder uh, as an, uh, and as an adult educator, although I am on a teaching sabbatical this year, so I'm enjoying my rest. Um, I, it's a privilege to be here for the first time to preach to you on this Christ the King Sunday, the final Sunday uh, before Advent. Um, as Pastor Patrick said, I am uh, engaged in theological study. I have a Master of Divinity from Western Seminary uh, in Sacramento, not in Holland, Michigan. And uh, I'm currently working on a Master of Theology on a very long path to become a Bible and Theology professor. Uh, so that's kind of where I'm at. My thesis that I'm working on is on uh, pr- the priesthood, specifically a priesthood in Eden. But that's a whole can of worms that we can get to. Another time, our scripture passage comes from the final paragraph of the Gospel of Luke and the opening paragraphs of uh, Luke's second volume, uh, the Acts of the Apostles. If you're using your pew Bibles, the first passage is on page 1644. Hear the word of the Lord. You are witnesses of these things. I am going to send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. When he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they, stayed con- and they stayed continually at the temple, praising God. And on page 1690. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men, dressed in white, stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Throughout the ages, Christians, preachers, teachers, and theologians have obediently proclaimed the person and work of Jesus as the basis of salvation. Born of a virgin, God became man in the person of Jesus. Past tense. The life of Jesus was marked by resisting temptation in its totality, a suffering we do not know. So we rightly confess that Jesus lived a sinless life. Past tense. On the cross, Jesus innocently died for our sins. Past tense. On the third day for our justification by faith, Jesus was raised from the dead. Again, past tense. In this era of Christendom, conservative evangelicalism has stopped here. Of course, that's even if they make it that far. I have found many conservative churches stop at the death of Jesus. Believe that Jesus died for your sins and you will be saved, they say. Really? What does Romans 4 and 5 say? They say after, uh, after talking about Abraham being justified by faith, not works, Paul says we likewise are justified by faith and calls on us to have faith specifically in the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus died for our sins and was raised for our justification. It takes no faith to believe a man 2,000 years ago died. Atheists believe that. It does, however, take faith to believe a man who lived 2,000 years ago, or nearly 2,000 years ago, was raised from the dead. That takes faith. This is not, of course, to suggest that nothing was accomplished in the death of Christ. I'm simply telling you that the death of Jesus on the cross was meaningless if he was not raised from the dead. And yet, while it is not the intention Many churches in our era still shortchange the gospel by stopping at the resurrection. Most of the gospel is rooted in these past tense events of history. But the person and work of Jesus, the, the gospel itself, is not merely a past tense series of events. At the transfiguration, the, the messianic deity, the everlasting sonship of Jesus, was confirmed to the disciples in the unveiling of his glory. He was at that moment definitively declared to the disciples to be the king of glory. After his transfiguration in Luke 9, 51, Jesus determined to go to Jerusalem to begin his exodus. To begin his exodus, his departure from Jerusalem. He was going to Jerusalem to leave Jerusalem. This was the culmination of his earthly life. During his whole journey to Jerusalem, his eyes were not just fixed on going to the cross or just fixed on being raised from the dead, although these are true. His eyes were also fixed on his ascension from Jerusalem to be seated at the right hand of his Father, to be exalted over all creation. The death and resurrection of Jesus are of utmost significance. And yes, we must put our faith in the resurrection of Jesus to be saved. But we must not forget that the ascension of Jesus plays a critical role in securing our eternal salvation. 
Over the last two centuries in particular, the ascension of Jesus has been largely neglected. But this was not so in church history. I am not aware of any major creed or confession from our denomination or even outside of our denomination that omits the ascension of Jesus as a critical belief of the Christian faith. The gospel in which all and any who have faith are saved is not merely past tense. The work of Jesus did not end nearly 2,000 years ago. It merely began. Now, the culmination of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus is the ascension, and the ascension answers a lingering question from the Hebrew Bible. God created the universe with the Garden of Eden as the Holy of Holies in his cosmic temple. Ezekiel 28 tells us that this Garden of Eden was set on a mountaintop. And so even if the temple was technically at a lower elevation geographically, you were always said to go up to Jerusalem. Whether from north, south, east, or west, you are going up to Jerusalem. You are going down from Jerusalem. And so we have the Garden of Eden as the first earthly holy of holies and the first earthly temple. And the priests of that temple were tasked with mediating God's glory to the ends of the earth. This first priestly couple failed to keep their hands clean. They failed to keep their hearts pure. They lifted up their soul to what was false rather than what was true. And so they were exiled from that most holy place. They descended from the mountain of God. Fast forward to Exodus 19. After rescuing his people from Egypt, God called on Israel to ascend the mountain so the whole nation could be consecrated as a kingdom of priests Again, to mediate God's glory to the ends of the earth. But the Israelites refused. They were afraid when they heard the thunder. And so God called Aaron and his descendants to serve as priests on behalf of the Israelites. And they served in this place called the tabernacle. Which the book of Hebrews tells us was a mere model of the heavenly prototype. We move into Leviticus which if you've read through Leviticus, or maybe I should say if you've struggled through Leviticus, uh, it attempts to answer this question. How can an unholy priest enter the Holy of Holies on behalf of a sinful people? Or more simply, who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? These priests were allowed to enter just one day a year to make atonement for the sins of the nation, but their own sins had to be dealt with as well. In fact, there is a, a Jewish tradition in which when priests went in for this once-a-year practice, they would be tied with a rope on the off chance that they forgot one of their own sins and were struck dead so that their body could be retrieved. That's not in the Bible, but that is from uh, some Jewish tradition. Very interesting. Maybe a little weird, but interesting nonetheless. If a priest followed the proper protocols, then he could enter to offer the sacrifice. And then there were practices and protocols to make sure the sacrifice itself was good. There had to be a proper priest and a proper sacrifice. And just like how the tabernacle was a model of the heavenly prototype, so also were the sacrifices models of the true and final sacrifice offered by the Messiah. 
We're told throughout Leviticus that when sacrifices were done in accordance with the instructions of God, the aroma ascended from the earthly model into the actual sacred space in heaven where it would be received by God. And so you have a sacrifice offered down here. It's done right, and it ascends to be received. The sacrifice has to be received for the sacrifice to actually accomplish anything. Answering the question, who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh, is complicated. When the priests who did that figural ascending were themselves inherently sinful. As Israel's history progressed, so also did their hope in a Messiah. Integral to the Messianic hope was that the Messiah would be totally innocent. He would entirely obey God. A prophet like Moses, yet a prophet greater even than Moses. A king greater than David. The Messiah is the servant who suffers innocently on behalf of the people of Israel. Isaiah 53 tells us the Messiah will appear in the form of a man. A man with a less than spectacular appearance, but who will nonetheless live a spectacular life. Spectacular because he will be totally without blemish, having never once disobeyed any command of Yahweh. It is the suffering servant who will be crushed to death by God as an offering for sin. But then Isaiah 53 says, my servant will be successful. After he's crushed, my servant will be successful. He will be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Resurrection, ascension, and exaltation. To Isaiah, these are related but distinct events. The Messiah would be raised, he would be lifted up, and then he would be exalted. Now in my studies on the ascension, I have noticed a tendency of some to conflate the resurrection and ascension. Within his succinct description of the gospel, one prominent reformed theologian of our day wrote in the intro of his systematic that Jesus was raised from the dead to the right hand of the Father effectively making the resurrection and the ascension the same event. But if the resurrection and the ascension are the same event, then our passages have no reason to highlight that there were 40 days between his resurrection and his ascension. Moreover, the New Testament give us, gives us a flow of thought leading from the death to the resurrection, to the ascension, and finally to the exaltation. A few chapters later in Acts 7, we read about Jesus' exaltation when the heavens are opened and Stephen sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Later, New Testament writers also give us the theological significance of Jesus' exaltation as the state and stature that flowed from his ascension. Isaiah's poem says the suffering servant will be raised, lifted up, and exalted. And this is what happened to Jesus. Jesus was raised from the dead, proving him to be who he claimed to be, proving the scriptures to be without error. He was raised to defeat death. 
He was raised to provide the framework of our hope for future salvation as those who will also be raised from the dead into physical bodies, free from sin and all of sin's consequences. He was raised to be the principal object of our faith, and he was raised to inaugurate the eternal life of new creation that begins now, not sometime in the distant future. Before his ascension, Jesus promised that his departure meant the arrival of the advocate, the paraclete, the the helper. Jesus ascended bodily and visibly so he could send his people the Holy Spirit. Our passage tells us Jesus ascended visibly and bodily to show us precisely how he will come back in the clouds on an unknown day of his vowed return. Importantly, Jesus ascended in order to bring his own sacrificial death into the heavenly temple to be received by God so he could prepare that place for us. Jesus brought his own self as the sacrifice into the heavenly temple. Jesus is both the high priest making the offering and is himself the thing being offered. Because Jesus was without sin, the sacrifice of Jesus, which was brought into the true heavenly temple, is without blemish. Just as it is true that Jesus, the priest, making the offering is without blemish. Because both the offering and the offerer are holy and clean, Jesus, the sacrifice offered by Jesus, the priest, was received by God, the Father. This bodily ascension of Jesus assures us that his death actually accomplished something. Hebrews 9, 11 to 14 tells us that eternal redemption was secured when the sacrifice on the cross was brought into the heavenly holy of holies. Jesus' death means something, confirmed by the resurrection, and what it achieved was accomplished when it was ascended into the heavenly throne. Because Jesus' sacrificial offering of himself was accepted by God the Father, Jesus therefore sits, present tense, he sits at God's right hand, exalted on the throne as the King of glory. And it is in this place of enthronement where Jesus intercedes present tense, where Jesus intercedes for us. While the work of Jesus is frequently spoken of in the past tense, it is the opposite in the book of Hebrews, where the work of Jesus is spoken of in the present tense. In, seven, in chapter 7, 23 and 24, the priesthood of Jesus is in contrast to all other priesthood because they died and remained dead. But Jesus died but did not remain dead. He was raised from the dead and thus holds his priesthood forever. Because of his total innocence, because of his separation from sinners, the author of Hebrews can reflect in 726 on how fitting it is for us to have Jesus as our high priest. This is why they say, that's why the author can confidently confess that we have a high priest. Not had, but we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand. 
And yes, there is a point when in the past tense when Jesus entered for the first time. But in 924, the writer reminds us that Jesus presently remains in the presence of God on our behalf. Moreover, the cross is not the center point of Jesus' work as a mediator. There was mediation happening there. But as Hebrews 9.15 puts it, Jesus continues to be a mediator for us. In Hebrews 12.2, the work of Jesus continues into all eternity. For that is how he remains seated at the right hand of the Father. In the ascension of Jesus... We celebrate his exodus. We celebrate his departure from Jerusalem when he took his innocent sacrifice for our sins into God's heavenly temple, ultimately securing our eternal redemption. Now in Acts 1, we meet a guy with an interesting name, Theophilus. No one names their kids Theophilus anymore. This is actually the second time he appears in the Bible. Luke and Acts are both dedicated to this man, Theophilus. The opening paragraph of Luke 1 introduces us to this, uh, to this man as well. We don't know much about Theophilus other than that he was a believer. He was likely quite wealthy, enough so that he could commission Luke to thoroughly investigate the events surrounding Jesus' earthly life, as well as the ministry of the apostles, and then write two orderly volumes for us. And Luke's, Luke tells us what his hope is, or at least he tells Theophilus what his hope is. And Luke's hope is that his writings would provide Theophilus some certainty about the things that he had been taught. In our passages, the first promise connected to the ascension that Jesus made was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it is this promise that is, re- is referenced in both of the passages we looked at. The reason we have the Holy Spirit is because Jesus ascended. If you are a Christian this morning, then you have the Holy Spirit living in you right now. If you have the Holy Spirit, then you live every day with the consequences of the ascension of Christ. At the end of Luke's first volume, Jesus told his apostles that they would be clothed with power from on high. At the beginning of Luke's second volume, Jesus told his disciples they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. To be clothed with power from on high and to be clothed with power from the Holy Spirit is the same thing. Can you say this Greek word dunamis? Dunamis. This is where we get the word dynamite from, dunamis. There is dynamic power that all disciples of Jesus receive when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we would not have had this gift had Jesus not ascended. Those first disciples were clothed with with the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit only a few days thereafter. And after reminding his disciples of this promise, Jesus instructed them to remain in Jerusalem for a brief period of time. Their their temporary stay in Jerusalem is rooted in the promise he told them about first. Remain in the city until you are clothed with the dynamic power 
of the Holy Spirit. Acts 1 verse 8 continues this idea of the apostles in Jerusalem following the ascension. And in fact, if you want to understand the entire book of Acts, you must pay attention to these forgotten red letters of Jesus. Acts 1 verse 8 is the programmatic verse for the entire book of Acts. You will be my witnesses, or as Luke 24 48 says, you are witnesses of these things. What, what things? Well, right before this in Luke 24 is when Jesus opened his disciples' minds from all three subsections of the Hebrew Bible, from the Torah, from the Nevi'im, the prophets, and from the Ketuvim, the writings. He opened their minds that the Messiah had to suffer, die, and be raised from the dead. His life, his death, and his resurrection are the things the apostles were to witness about. How about this Greek word? Can you say martus? Martus. This is where we get the word martyr from. This is actually the word for witness. And for all the apostles, their sharing the good news about the person and work of Jesus Messiah would lead to their martyrdom. Some would be boiled. Some would be burned. Some would be crucified upside down among many other painful and grotesque ways. And they all rejoiced to have had the privilege to be killed for testifying truthfully about the one who they knew was raised from the dead. When that day comes, may we all have courage and boldness such as they. Acts 1.8 continues, You will be my witnesses first to Jerusalem, then Judea, then Sumeria, and then to the ends of the earth. This began at Pentecost when Jews from all over the region just so happened to be in the area. In the midst of the Holy Spirit being poured out at Pentecost, one of the first groups of people to be told what happened in the city of Jerusalem were those from the surrounding region of Judea. Several chapters later, we are introduced to Stephen, a prototype deacon who was stoned for preaching about Jesus. We meet another man, Saul, who would later be called Paul, who was actually the one who signed off on Stephen's stoning. The first story we read after Stephen's stoning is of Philip, another prototype deacon who preached in Samaria. And then he just so happened to meet an Ethiopian eunuch, and he led that eunuch to faith by explaining to him the meaning of the scriptures beginning with Isaiah 53 and how it all pertained to this guy, Jesus, that everyone was talking about. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Check. You will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria. Check, check. You will be my witnesses even to the ends of the earth. This black sexual minority is the prototype Gentile whose conversion and transformation began the church's explosive expansion to all the ends of the earth. We then meet again Paul, who was converted and transformed by the power of the gospel. And Paul became the premier preacher-theologian of all church history. He would go anywhere to preach the gospel. He reasoned with Jews about their own scriptures in their own synagogues. He reasoned with Gentiles about the missing link from their philosophies. In Acts 17, the city of Athens was flooded with idolatry. 
But Paul noticed that they had an altar to an unknown God on the off chance, you know, that they may have forgotten one along the way, along the way and didn't want to, you know, make them upset. Paul proceeded to tell them about the God they forgot. And in doing so, he paraphrases the opening of Psalm 24. He says, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Paul proceeded to proclaim the resurrection of Jesus. And the Athenians didn't know what to do with this. Many laughed it off as absurd, going back to their mute and deaf idols, just as many do today with our idolatry smorgasbord of politics, sports, and identity, isolating and presenting ourselves on social media precisely the way we want. A self-crafted image that reprioritizes fear over the safety of the Lord. Emotionalism over the stability and order of the spirit. That which does not give us life, but rather kills us with crippling depression, anxiety, or the pits of meaninglessness. Anything that may distract us from our only identity, which is in Christ. Yet some in Athens felt compelled to put their faith in the resurrection, forsaking their idolatry, renouncing the vestiges of the world to instead worship the one true and right king of the world. We've taken this little detour through Acts because the mission of the church is directly tied to the ascension of Jesus. Paul's paraphrase from Psalm 24 brings us back to our passage and we, we read the words from Psalm 24 for our call to worship, but I, I'll just read them again Psalm in its entirety because it is so pinnacle to a right understanding of the ascension of Christ. The earth is Yahweh's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? Who shall stand in his holy place? Answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false, he who does not swear deceitfully, he will receive blessing from Yahweh and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is also the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Answer? Yahweh, strong and mighty. Yahweh, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates. Lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? Answer, Yahweh of hosts. He is the King of glory. Who shall ascend the mountain of Yahweh? The King of glory shall ascend because he has clean hands. The King of glory shall ascend because he has a pure heart. The King of glory shall ascend into the heavenly temple because he is totally innocent, 
wholly separate from sin, just as any priest entering the Holy of Holies was supposed to be. Psalm 24 depicts the King of glory ascending the mountain of the Lord. And as he approaches, even the entry gates pay attention. Even the entry gates are obedient to the voice of God, opening that the one who at last is worthy to enter may do so, to reign in strength and power and honor and glory. Jesus lifted up his hands and he blessed them. We're not told what he said in his blessing, but Jesus' blessing over his disciples in Luke 24, 49 prompted them then in verses 52 to 53 to worship Jesus and to bless God in the temple in Jerusalem. The disciples did not hoard the blessing of God. They, the blessing that they received was redirected outward as an act of worship. While Jesus blessed his disciples, they saw Jesus get carried up or taken into heaven into clouds. And then we read a brief explanation from two men standing in white apparel who proclaim to them that Jesus will return, that he will come again in the same way that he left in the clouds. This isn't the first appearance of these two men in white apparel. In Luke 9, these two appeared and explained to three male disciples the true identity of Jesus, thus launching the church's worship of Jesus. In Luke 24, these two appeared and explained the empty tomb to three female disciples, thus launching the church's glorious hope in everlasting life. And in Acts 1, these two appeared and explained to all disciples that Jesus will return, thus launching our confession, the church global and historic's confession that Jesus will come again. The ascension of Jesus gives the church our mission. The ascension of Jesus gives the church the ammunition to pursue, but also to succeed at that mission. And that ammunition is the dynamic power of the Holy Spirit that all who put their faith in the resurrection of Jesus have in them now. Let us never forget that it is only the perfect priest, only because the perfect priest ascended into the heavenly temple with the sacrifice of his own unblemished body that any and all who repent, any and all who put their faith in his resurrection, any and all who submit their life entirely to the lordship of Jesus, our King of glory, it is only by that that any and all of us can receive the fruit of our Savior's labor, our eternal salvation. Let's pray. Almighty God, whose blessed Son, our Savior Jesus Christ, ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things, mercifully give us faith to perceive that according to his promise that he abides with his church on earth even to the ends of the ages. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord and King, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, in glory everlasting. Amen.